Is there anyone here who's new to Inside Meditation? This is, you haven't done any of it. Okay. Have you done, uh, no other hand. Have you done other forms of meditation? Have you followed breathing and whatever you've done? Of, and where's the other, have you? And have you? Nothing. So you're new to meditation, period. Okay. We have a challenge here. I'm sure we'll uh, rise to the occasion. There are a lot of us, in terms of walking, I'll get to that. Uh, I'm still trying to get a sense of the best way to do that. Um, I'm going to have to review very, very briefly uh, some of what was said last night, uh, just so those of you who were not here last evening uh, can get a sense of things. And we'll s it'll be like any other retreat, those of you who've done retreats. Uh, the particular method that I use is anapanasati, where you use the breathing, we'll start off together, uh, and I'll give instructions that will, I hope, be adequate for someone who's never sat before. Um, so it's used to calm and concentrate the mind. That's, much that's familiar to pretty much everyone. Almost every Buddhist school that I know of uses breath awareness to some degree or another. But the breath can also be used as a kind of support or companion uh, as you look into everything that's other than breath. That is, the different moods and mind states, the condition of the body, all the attitudes uh, and emotions that make up mental life, emotional life. And, of course, the, the crown jewel of silence. Uh, by the way, I left out the punchline last night. Uh, it was so spontaneous that I, uh, it was disjointed. Uh, but <laughs> about the Maasai, do you remember those of you? How many of you were here last night? Yeah, okay. Difficult. Uh, I'll start there. Uh, the Maasai are a tribe in Africa who heard about 9-11 and uh, could grasp the number of people who had died, but couldn't grasp how high the buildings were. It was reported by one of their tribe members who was in New York and was it when it happened. And no matter how hard he tried, they could not grasp uh, a, a human construction being that high. Uh, for them, what is tall is a giraffe or certain trees. And finally, you know, he just stopped trying to get, get through that. Uh, because that's the natural environment that, that, the, that those people live in. They also, incidentally, but not incidentally, it was a very moving story, uh, donated a whole bunch of cows, which is very sacred in their culture. So it's the best gift they could give uh, to the survivors in New York. And it's, it will make its way here, not as cows, but as the cows will be sold, the money will be used to make th their own crafts, and then will be given as much as possible to the, to the survivors. The, the reason I mentioned it is that in our culture, silence is like that. It's just that if you don't have a frame of reference which allows for buildings that are skyscrapers, literally, um, then it's hard to picture it because the mind has not seen it. Uh, silence is not uh, thought much of in our culture. Uh, it's thought of as a break. The refrigerator stops rumbling, the kids turn the TV off, you live on a nice quiet street, 
you go to sleep, it would be nice to get a good night's rest, etc. Uh, the reason I'm starting with that is that all of this hard work we do, where our knees hurt and we have to look at all this stuff that we don't want to look at and someone like me keeps reminding you to look at it, don't run away, look at it, and you don't want to do that, but all right, give it a try, is to come to what you could call the original mind or true nature, or essence. There's a lot of words for it. Uh, another word for it is stillness. Uh, the Tibetans, one school of, one of Tibetan Buddhism, refers to enlightenment as the great stillness. Um, I like that way of looking at it because it's closer to what it actually feels like. Um, so that the whole thrust of Vipassana meditation is to calm and steady the mind, to make it fit, serviceable. Like, uh, if you have very poor vision, which I do, I see blurs now, forms and colors, uh, and if I had a, someone gives me a good exam and gives me well-produced uh, well glasses, I can see very clearly now. Uh, we think we're seeing clearly, to begin with, already. That's the illusion of being, after all, I'm an adult. Uh, we don't have any psychiatric disease uh, that, that causes us to be, uh, think otherwise. Uh, but from the point of view of this level of truth, with seeing through yesterday's eyes, so much of what is going on is se seen through our history of conditioning. All of us have a life story. Things that have happened to us, it's stored inside here. And that is between us and what we see and what we attempt to understand and what we say and how we act. And it feels like it's very individual. This is me. The truth is, it's thousands of years of culture have been poured into us. And very little of it is original. That's why the Buddha could say in Anatta that, what we can, what, that it's impersonal. As you get to watch the mind, you'll see more and more uh, that quality of it, that this stuff just comes out. Uh, it comes from nowhere, it goes back to nowhere. Um, and if you don't, if you get some practice not identifying with it, not giving it energy, and then believing, th 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 believing what you've just thought, you begin to see that these little creatures called thoughts and moods, they're homeless and rootless. They just sort of come up, operate, and then they go back to zero. They came out of zero. Uh, and you can, that, Freedom is liberating yourself from your own mind. It's kind of odd. But we're so identified with everything that the mind produces. And that's what we construct this notion of a me to whom everything is happening and who acquires possessions and etc. We devote our best energies in the service of this me. As you start to watch, uh, and it's very hard to do that unless the mind has become somewhat fit, we use the singular breathing that is, coming back to the breath again and again, and I'll uh, put that into words in a few moments. And everything that we do in life to develop this quality of steady attention, mindfulness, so that uh, we'll do some form of walking meditation. Uh, but most of you have no doubt heard the instructions uh, come right from the original teachings of the Buddha. Be mindful while sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. In short, whatever we do the entire day, our life is something to be lived consciously. Mindfulness is uh, being awake, sensitive to what your experience is as you're 
enacting that experience. So the degree to which the mind can become clear, focused, steady, uh, with a good pair of eyeglasses, uh, then when we allow the, uh, the second form of sitting that we'll be gaining some experience with today, uh, maybe this afternoon or late morning, it depends. There's no formula because you're all in different places and finally, you know, you decide what, you, what to do, but I'm going to verbally at least lay out a certain framework. Uh, as we sit and breathe in this method of anapanasati, uh, we relax in the breathing and we're open to whatever turns up. We learn how to do that. We learn how to welcome whatever is there. Uh, so what starts to come up is all of this conditioning. It also, the mind starts to naturally empty itself of its own content. What's in you starts to come to the surface, present itself. Our job is simply to see it arise and pass away. See, insight, one of the main meanings of insight, is to see that it's impermanent and empty. Empty doesn't mean that it's a hallucination. It, it, one connotation would be it's insubstantial. It, if you see impermanence, you'll see all of it, because they're all, in a sense, derived from seeing how nothing lasts. Anything that emerges must also disappear. See if that's so. It's a law according to the Buddhist teaching. But you have to confirm that yourself. As you begin to see things, and let's say you start seeing fear, loneliness, anger, whatever, and you begin to see its nature, that when we're, in Buddhist terms, deluded, that is, let's say the fear comes, we totally identify with the fear, we make, I am afraid, this is happening to me, I am terrified. If you make terror, you have terror. You make fear, you have fear. But if you can watch the energy of fear, not from a distance, but actually intimately, but see it for what it is. Uh, I'll use fear as an example. Strong bodily sensations, uh, lots of disabling thoughts, mostly uh, coming from an imagined future, perhaps a fear of a, of a past that's over with uh, reoccurring. Uh, as you begin to see that, uh, you see it's manageable. It's actually workable. Fear is just, it's an energy in life. Every human being knows it. We also all know boredom. We also know joy, elation, hatred. All of them, how, however cat many categories you want to divide them up, and the different Buddhist schools have divided them up in different ways. That's not so important. What's important is to be able to see what's there, to see it for what it is. As you see its nature, all you have to do is just be mindful of it. It reveals itself. It's telling you, I just come here for a little while, I do this thing, and then I'm gone. Now, if you identify with it, it's as if it's very solid, and it's as if it's forever. The fear feels like it's never going to go away. It feels like you won't survive. It's overwhelming. And uh, then we have to do all kinds of things to, uh, to, to defend ourselves or to get out of the situation or not to get out of the situation, be crushed by it. So as we get better in, an, in what I would call eventually, at the beginning, I don't think it feels this way, enjoy the show, for goodness sakes. You know, you just watch it all coming and going. It's a remarkable show. Now, at first, we don't feel that at all. We worship these, the reactions of the mind, conditions. We give immense authority over to the productions of the mind. Tremendous authority to thinking. We're not aware that thought is running our life, literally. It's telling us what to do. There's a, the bumper stickers in Cambridge are getting much better now. 
It used to be I'd rather be golfing, I'd rather be fishing. Unless you like golf and fishing, I, I don't particularly. Now it's don't believe everything you think. It's getting onto really, you know, deep stuff. <laughs> so I guess they tried golfing and fishing. <laughs> it's okay, but, you know, there's still a jerk doing the golfing and the fishing. Uh, so uh, they say, well, who makes jerk? Well, you see, your mind does. Um, and as you see that, uh, it becomes fascinating. Uh, it's actually quite uh, fulfilling and enjoyable, even the stuff you don't want to be there. But at first, it's very, very convincing, of course. As you, your ability to, to watch this passing show, see it all come and go, you see the impermanence of it, you see that it isn't quite as substantial. As the substantiality was something you imputed to it. You gave that to it. Just as we give immense power to thought, here's something for you to think about some other time. Thought runs our life. You can think about it right now for a few seconds, permitted. Thought runs our life. Very powerful. We're not aware of it. We think we're seeing what's going on, and not aware that uh, a verbal explanation has come before and told us what's going on, and then we take that to be the fact. But if you're ever mindful of thought, as I'm sure some of you have, you'll see that if thoughts come up and instead of getting caught in the thought, you're mindful of it, which is all the difference in the world, the thought has no power. It just poof, it falls apart. It's such a poor, uh, pathetic, flimsy little thing unless you breathe life into it by believing it. So the thought comes up, you see it, and just a sometimes sentences, you have a head full of half sentences, which make no sense because you're looking at the beginning of a sentence, it falls away and maybe a few survivors get through the, you know, the mind somehow. Uh, and then uh, after a while, that's okay, you don't care, you're not trying to make sense out of it. And as it starts losing its power, this takes you, you don't try to get there, this takes you to silence. You've all had silence already. I, I'm starting backwards in a way. I'm experimenting, we only have a few hours together. If I can get the sense of why we do all this, uh, perhaps it'll make more sense as to why we do all this. Um, the word silence is a word I like, but it's still just a word. Stillness, spaciousness, you've all heard these words. It's right here, right now as we speak. It's not uh, on some mountaintop or in a cave. It's right with you, right in this room. It's just barely below the threshold of all this chatter in the mind, all this thinking, worrying, planning, reassurance, uh, etc. A steady stream of it, even in our sleep. Dreams. Uh, fortunately, supposedly, uh, it feels true, we have a couple of hours of dreamless sleep where we'd be totally uh, finished. Uh, where there's no thinking, which is to say there's no me. Finally, me takes a holiday. You know, the dreaming part is not so special. It's still part of most dreaming. It's still part of what's going on during the day. It's like unfinished business. We haven't faced certain things. We haven't resolved certain things in our life. We've not acted in decisive ways where action is needed. And so the night shift comes on. And they say, look, we've got to resolve it. You've got to understand this. If you're not going to deal with it directly, we'll disguise it. We'll make it into this, that, and a, you know, make it like a myth. And then you can go to experts, and they'll tell you what it is. It's just pay the rent, for God's sakes. You know, get a job, you know, like, but you can't hear that? All right, we'll have the tigers are chasing you, you know. 
just bill collectors. <laughs> you know. So we pay some Jungian analysts. I think that might be bill collectors. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so there's a, a, a process of getting to know the mind. And as you get to know the mind, you become free of the mind. Uh, the problem isn't, we're not against the mind. Having, it's the difference between the ability to think and the compulsion to think. The ability to think is a, a wonderful human gift. If you can think straight, that's an asset in all kinds of ways. We know that. It's when it becomes a compulsion and when we use thought in a realm that it's really not, that isn't appropriate. So we're learning how to use thought, and by thought I mean its children as well, um, when it's helpful and to let it go into abeyance when we don't need it. Now, we're learning how to do that, whether you realize it or not. The silence that's just below the surface of this din of the mind being preoccupied with itself, you taste it now and then. You get calm, a few breaths in continuity. Uh, sometimes it's just 10 seconds, or I know many of you longer than that. And you recognize its beauty, don't you? Isn't it nice when suddenly the machine stops going and, oh, and then we actually want it. But that process in this style of practice uh, has, is dynamic. Don't be fooled by the fact that you're relaxed. It's passive in that you're just relaxed, but it's active in that alertness is required. So you're allowing whatever is happening to happen. You let it happen. But you're right there with that. Now we're learning how to do that. I'm not saying that that's easy. But I'm also not saying it's difficult. It's what it is. And if you start doing it, like anything else you've all learned skills in your life, you can learn this one. But you have to apply yourself, not get discouraged if you don't uh, master it the first day for the new people. Probably you won't. Definitely you won't. If you have, if you master it today, please finish, take the retreat over and you teach it. I'll just exchange. It, it, it seems to take some time. And as the mind empties itself of itself, you're introduced into a realm. It's another dimension of human consciousness. It's not weird. It's not freaky. It's not even special. In our culture, it has been special. And that's what I meant by the Maasai. Uh, we can't conceive of it, or the problem is we try to conceive of it, and it's inconceivable, because it's not words. So we're trying to make up words about something that, by definition, is not words. And you can do that, but it's limited. So the best thing that I can accomplish, if at all, is pointing to, uh, in the absence of all of our preoccupations, is an infinite world that is uh, inner riches, that is why we do all this, why People for thousands of years have given their best energy to this. It's not just simply to calm down, and that's good too. If that's all you want, that's fine. And if you want to, there are all kinds of values that come out of meditation. Most of you already know that. What I'm trying to say is don't sell the practice short, because it has the potential for bringing out your full potential. <coughs> this is something that <coughs> all human beings have the possibility of. If you were born, you have this capacity to enter into this, uh, another realm that's uh, vast, silent, but silent doesn't mean stagnant or dead. It's vibrant with life. It's just a very refined kind of life energy, extraordinarily refined. Remember, in meditation, 
in the, in, the, in the world of mind, the more refined and subtle, the more powerful it is. Maybe in life that's true too. It's not just flexing muscles. The more subtle the mind gets, the more powerful it gets. The quieter the mind is, the stronger the mind is. Just think of all the energy that's squandered in our conflicts, in our indecisiveness, in our evasions, running away from what is, and so forth. Well, that's all, that energy is now available to you. It's not being used in endless projects about what might be, what used to be. And there's a whole world, and we know anyone who's tasted it even a little bit, those of you have been around the block a bit in terms of meditation, been practicing for a while, have you had the experience that, let's say, after a retreat, either you feel it or someone points out that you feel you're more loving? You weren't even practicing metta, not a, no official love practice. You're just watching everything come and go, come and go. And you find that you're a little bit more understanding, a little bit more loving. You're seeing a little bit more clearly. I have had that experience, and I, good, I see some. I could use some nods if you, you know, <laughs> yeah, thank you. I need some help here, you know. <laughs> I'm, I don't know, I'm projected onto you, these tough New Yorkers, you know, like, uh, like I heard my, the introduction that Tom gave me last night, warm, deep, and funny. And I, and I felt like, yeah, I can hear how New Yorkers are hearing that. All right, make me laugh. You know, <laughs> you know warm me up. All right, I'm waiting. Go ahead. So uh, I'm a little intimidated because I've been away from the Big Apple for a while. Um, so this hard work takes us to this quality of mind that's a normal dimension of human existence. It's, it's not reserved for special people. The culture can define it that way so that special people take it on as a life's work, dress a certain way, devise a whole lifestyle called monks or nuns, or, and that is one way that has been practiced for thousands of years and in some cases very successfully. But that isn't our choice. As I look around, I don't see any monks and nuns. Uh, and so the question then becomes, is it possible for us people, ordinary lay people who have lives, so, you know, recognizably familiar lives, is it possible for us to have access to that quality? And I would say without hesitation, it is. And then once you do, what, what comes out of it? The Tibetans have a very, they talk about the cognizing power of emptiness. It's that there's a kind of intelligence. I'm going to distinguish that from intellect. We, we, which is, which, when we say someone's very intelligent, it usually means they're highly intellectually developed or highly educated, or both. Usually it's both. Um, I'm using the word intelligence now, which it's, it's a separate human quality. It's not in contradiction to logic, rationality, which is a, a beautiful human capacity as well. It's something that's innate and that knows. When uh, we more, uh, more and more start to be that, it's not so much using it as being it, we find that the world is transformed. First of all, this planet is a beautiful place to a clear mind. Everything is miraculous. The most ordinary thing is just wonderful to do. You don't, you become so much easier, to, it's easier to satisfy, be satisfied and content. Because, uh, as they say in Zen, nothing special, which is to say everything's special. Um, that becomes, you see it as a palpable reality. It's not fanciful or reserved for a special 
mystics who have sallow cheeks and you know, wear, you know, have eyes that are looking like this in photographs of 1920s somewhere. Uh, <clears throat> just people like ourselves. You can keep your high heels and your three-piece suits. It's okay. That's not the problem. And as we tap that, this cognizing power intelligence is not separate from compassion. Not at all. They're the same. Wisdom, compassionate words. The Buddha talks about it as a wing, a bird with two wings, wisdom and compassion. That's to begin with. But finally, real wisdom has compassion. Real compassion is wise. Uh, they're just words for some knowing quality that's quite valuable and precious. And that's why the Dharma has been done and passed on laboriously, sometimes through great hardship over thousands of years. There have always been, apparently, people who have tasted it and wanted to share it. There have never been an army of takers, never. And probably there won't be now either. But you're here, so I have to assume that, you ha that you're open to at least hear about it. What you do is, it's your life, it's your choice, of course. Okay, so silence, uh, as you start to tap it, then uh, the practice becomes living, bringing that uh, quiet mind, or still mind, or clear mind, or whatever word you like, Buddha nature, uh, and there are varying degrees of depth to it, of course, depth, um, is to bring that into our affairs. Now, I'm coming round to what is this relationship? I thought he was going to say something about relationship. I am. Last night, I hope I hammered away enough to understand that much of what goes on in relationship are conditioned reactions. We're in each other's presence. We, re we react a certain way according to our life history, our inclinations, etc. That's pretty clear. Okay, take a look if it isn't clear to you. In other words, it happens. Someone says or looks at you a certain way or treats you a certain way, and a reaction comes out. And what is was being suggested is that relationship is a mirror. Uh, all of the Buddhist teachings have to do with self-knowing, coming to know yourself. By learning how to be remain uh, clear and aware of these reactions as they happen, they start to lose their power. And so, but you see what's there. And sometimes what you see, if you look, it's always been there. But we have not wanted to see it as it is. We have images of ourselves. I'm of this, I'm of that. As you, as you watch how you actually live, underline actually, capital letters, italics, neon sign, actually, actually, not how you, you think you live, or how you should live, or how your mommy told you to live. How do I actually live? And not as some global construct, moment by moment. Uh, Self-knowledge in the Buddhist teachings is something that always happens in the active present. You're learning as you live. You keep seeing, this is what's going on. This is, and you learn things about yourself. Some of them are flattering, some of them are painful, and all of them are to be seen and let go of. You, you do that by, by allowing them to be what they are, but not either grasping or pushing away. Uh, Joseph was here a week or two ago, Goldstein. Did you, how many of you were here for his talk? Good. A key, Joseph and I have talked about this for years, and uh, I personally think his book is very important right now because there's so many, everyone's learning from everyone else in all the different traditions. Great possibility for confusion. And what he's identified it's very obvious, it's, it's stated, and he just, it's sort of the emperor's clothes. He's saying the emperor has no clothes on. All these traditions are saying 
we're practicing liberation. It's about freedom. Liberation through non-clinging. That means neither grasping nor pushing away. Uh, the forms are proliferate. They're endless in all the different traditions. Uh, but they come down to this ability to let go into freedom. Okay, so if you can use relationship rather than see it as an obstacle, if only I could spend much more time on the cushion and avoid relationships or keep it at a distance, you know, not let anyone approach me too much, but, you know, have a date once in a while, uh, I'll be safer and then I can scurry to my cushion and do the real thing. If you can get over that, artificial split and rather see it there's, there's just life before there was sitting there was life sitting is a form a brilliant human form that's been invented uh, that is extraordinarily helpful I know I don't have to convince most of you but then you get up from the cushion and then what I'm saying is rather than viewing relationship even though all of us have received wounds there I, I, I feel it's like when Jesus said, uh, when they were going to stone the woman who had an affair, said, Is there, uh, the, let the person who's not had any sexual problems throw the first stone. No one threw a stone. We're all screwed up there, <laughs> to one degree or another. We've been hurt. We've hurt others. Uh, I'm not saying it's weird. It seems to be a part of human life. Maybe what's weird is an attempt to come out of that, to move into sanity and caring, sometimes maybe not even getting gratification because we see what the price is in human suffering. And we intentionally opt to not get gratified because we see that there's something much bigger involved. But you have to see that. Taking precepts is no guarantee of anything. I've seen thousands of people now, I don't know, take the precepts and then, uh, it's just something you say, unless you live it, it depends on how much you mean it. But we have energies that are so powerful. That's why we need the precepts to help us. But finally, it's wisdom that will enable you to live what the precepts are talking about because you don't do these harsh, cruel, insensitive things because they, they're not wise. They don't work. They never work. You lie, cheat, steal. In, inevitably, whether you want to call it karma or not, inevitably, there's a price to be paid and it's a steep one. And the whole human race is paying for it right at this minute. Whether you look at individuals, couples, or whole nations. It seems to be the same principle. Okay, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, roughly. We're learning in relationship, to, as we learn about ourselves, we're part of that cycle of mechanical reactivity. You become aware of this clinging mind, the mind that's either grasping or pushing away. It starts to lose its power and then you enter into what you could call the beginnings of this uh, silent, clear mind. And what is possible from that mind is a response, which is very different than a reaction. A response can be much more adequate because it sees the situation as it is, not through yesterday's eyes of your conditioning. It sees who the person is clearly. And you can't see the person clearly if your head is filled up with all your ideas about who the person is or who they used to be. You know, maybe they're a member of a certain category well, yeah, that person's an ex. We know all about exes. Okay, we have laws. Don't be discriminating, don't prejudice, ethnic profiling, all that. You can't pass a law about the psyche. The psyche does what it does. But you can get to know the psyche. And it's about inner disarmament. 
outer disarmament, we've had it. It doesn't work because there's still inner violence. And inevitably, the best rules, the best plans, Soviet Union, Marxism, a lot of Marxism is quite beautiful, uh, totally unrealistic because the psyches were the same old psyches, greed, hatred, and delusion. Fine, these people want Marxism to uh, each from their need, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the same old mind reinstalls itself. And it's so unrealistic that it failed. Capitalism is much more realistic. It's saying, we're greedy. Let's go at it. You know? So, terrific, you know? It's just, it feels comfortable. There are going to be a lot of casualties, but that's all right, you know? I'm not going to be one of them. Then you become one of them and you lead a political movement or something, write a book. Um, so, more and more relationship, uh, relationship reveals the ways of the self. The Buddha is saying that the whole practice is letting go of the attachment to me and mine. This incessant, powerfully conditioned tendency to uh, identify with everything that happens, or almost, as being me or mine. You know, in just simple Vipassana practice, if you have a pain in your knee, let's say, and you will have them soon, as we start, we will sit. Uh, we have, you have a pain in your knee. If you're totally mindful of it, I'm repeating something I think you all know, the pain is still there. You feel throb, throb, ache, ache. If this sense of me and mine comes into it, that is, if let's say you're, the level of your concentration falters and suddenly uh, you're not as attentive to the, the raw sensation of the pain, suddenly the mind sweeps in. It doesn't take much time. It takes no time. And then it becomes my pain, my knee. Then you have torment. Then you have sorrow, then you have anguish, then you have, you've got a lot of trouble. Because it's not simply that there's a pain in the knee, it's happening to my knee, for God's sakes. This is me that this is happening to. And that's what's going on all day long. We're the, the entire universe is here for us. In one sense it is, but in a profound sense. But in, you see what I'm getting at. It just, it's a delusion. As you start to free yourself from that, there are these great possibilities of uh, living a life that's much more harmonious. Uh, you know, you've read all the books I've read, so you know what's next. This is just one method, and uh, the encouragement last night was relationship not only re reveals the ways of the self, because you can see yourself in action if you pay attention, it's obvious. You know, me, 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 you, how can you say that to me? And it's also a way of freeing yourself from the self. Because in the, in the self-revelation is the dissipation of that. As you see it, it starts losing its power. And you start to feel what it's like to live from a very, very different place. Not totally identify with all these notions of who we are, images of who we are, etc., etc. Any questions before we start? Uh, during our retreat today, uh, you know, on, on retreats, it's customary to, to, to not talk about relationships. This is not about relationships. We're all here as atomized individuals. You know, we're, a, a retreat is a, a, a rather strange gathering because you're here for yourself, to get to know yourself, yet you have a lot of company. So we're together and we're alone at the same time. But you can't stop someone who's wearing one gray sock and one blue sock. What's wrong with that? Didn't I? <laughs> 
what are they, can't they tell the difference between yours is, or whatever. So that relationship is alive and well, even in silence. You know, we may have, you can have the holy look on your face as you walk and all that. We're still, oh, he looks interesting, she looks mm, terrific, maybe during lunchtime I'll. Uh, so the world doesn't stop, it's all going on, but, and I'm not, I'm not telling you how to behave, well, honor the rules of the retreat, but begin to see the ways of the mind about how it's, these things come up, it's not like we decide. And as you get to know that, this mechanicality, conditioned, machine-like, it goes off like a Swiss watch often, it's so predictable. Just listen to Israelis talk about the Palestinians, you know exactly how they're going to answer every question. Palestinians, you know exactly how they're going to answer, there's no, no surprises, I haven't heard one, it's amazing. So, but watch yourself, you'll see that it's similar, or people you know. We're conditioned and we take that to be individuality. As that starts to lose its power, there's a freshness that comes into life. And, or you could call it an aliveness. And I think that's a lot of, in ordinary language, what our practice is about. Sometimes that aliveness will be expressed through art, or through cooking, or through lovemaking, or through study, or through whatever your world is like, rearing children. It's not, it's not limited to a particular form, but you have to tap it and then bring it into the forms, and then it's there for you to live through and with. Okay, any questions before we start to sit? Please. Last night, um, you told a story about a, uh, um, uh, a teacher in Asia somewhere, and you were in his presence, and uh, a young guy from California oh, yes. was, was in his presence. Yes. And um, I thought it was kind of an interesting and instructive story, but I didn't quite get it. Okay. And so my question was, and maybe you want to recount the, I'll have to. the story, because you probably know it and can do it better than I, but uh, what was the difference between you being there and he being there in spite of all this turmoil about him following his heart? Yes. The story was, uh, this was in a monastery, a forest monastery in Thailand with Ajahn Mahabua. His style is take no prisoners. Uh, if you want a new age style, don't go to his wife. Um, he's actually a wonderful teacher. Could be a stand-up comic, also uh, Green Beret. I mean, you never know which mo which, which, what he's going to be from moment to moment. And that's part of it. For example, when you meditate there, each one of us, you get a, a hut in the jungle. They call it forest tradition. It's not a forest. Forest, you go to picnics, you know? <laughs> this is a jungle. Snakes, everything is there. Uh, it should be the Thai jungle tradition. <laughs> anyway, but forest sounds nice. Okay. Uh, so you're in a hut, and all the huts are separated from each other. All the different yogis are separated with interconnecting paths. You can't see the neighboring huts, but they're connected by paths. And then to a main area where there's a big hall and where uh, Ajahn uh, Mahabua and other monks live and so forth. Uh, and you're just on your own. Sometimes you come together for group practice. He will make his way, or his rounds, just to give you a sense of the guy who was talking. Uh, and peek into the hut. If you're sleeping at any time of day or night, you don't have, he puts a chalk mark. And he said he learned this from Americans. You know, a, he said, three strikes and you're out. And if he finds you sleeping three times, he asks you to leave the monastery. Now it's random, you don't know when he's gonna turn up. So there might, could be some sleepy heads who are getting through the radar. 
and there could be some people who just happen to be asleep three times, but they're mostly awake, out. So this is the kind of guy. He's a, a, a very fine teacher. So this uh, person, rather new to the practice, shows up from California. Uh, I don't know who the kid was, but 22, looked like if he wasn't a surfer, he should be, or he would get the role of a surfer in a surfing movie. And uh, he makes some kind of comment about how do you know what to do, how to act. And he says, um, what, what did I say he said? I want your uh, words. Followed his heart. Yeah, I, I follow my heart. I look into my heart, follow my heart. Sounds good, sounds very new age. It actually sounds practical too. What else are you gonna get? And Mahabua couldn't understand it. He had to have it translated four or five times. Finally, he rolled over laughing. You know, and he just said, you follow what's in the heart. He says, that cesspool full of urine and feces and you know, like uh, bad information and stupidities and greed. He said, and he just couldn't, he couldn't control. He just kept laughing. Okay, so. Uh, what do I do? It's not I, it's wh what would the practice be? Of course, you always have to work with what you have, don't you? I mean, so that you can't wait until you're perfect and what, never act until you have this clear mind that I just talked about, you know, that's radiant and just knows exactly what to do, it's always wise and kind. Uh, of course not. Much of how you get to that heart is through foolish behavior. The question is whether you learn from your foolishness or you just keep repeating it over and over and over again. So that's why Dharma teachings exist. At first, because they're just words, but they're pointers in the right direction. So that let's say if you see a sign, New York. It isn't New York, but it helps you get to New York. Okay, so it's helpful, let's say if you've never been to New York and you don't know the roads, New York, 22 miles. It's nice to see that, it's friendly and helpful. Otherwise, you're figuring out how to get there. So Dharma teachings are, in a sense, guiding us how to live. And the Buddha gave very precise instructions. It's actually a question that would, I'm, I'm gonna have to give a, does the Reader's Digest still exist? You know, kind of short version of um, What the Buddha suggested is that you take teachings from the various teachers, because people were getting confused. All the different teachers had different teachings. And don't believe it just because it's ancient, because it's from a great text, or your teacher has a long beard, or whatever it is. Uh, try, test it, live with it, and see if it is beneficial. If it produces harm, uh, it doesn't really help you live, then drop it. If you see that it's helpful and beneficial for you and for others, then keep doing it. So it's a kind of, uh, you are given some guidance. That's what's called Dharma teachings. They're guidelines, pointers. Now some of that is because the heart on its own is tremendously driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. So there are verbal teachings, there are teachers who are, to, to the degree to which they have clarified their own lives, are all trying to help you live as best as you can. But finally, the best thing you can do is to clean up that heart. Because then you'll see for yourself. And as you practice, it should become easier to live. Uh, to me, meditation is finally, it's about one, it's an explosion of love. And if you're not feeling a little more, if you've been doing this practice for a while, and you're not feeling that there is more love in your life, find out why. Are, are you doing the practice correctly? Or maybe it's the wrong practice for you. I don't know what. Uh, so, the, so you do the best you can with the help you, that is available. But more and more, uh, you f you, you don't, you're not as needy of verbal teachings and physical teachers.
because finally, the whole point of the Buddha's teaching at his death, he says, be a lamp unto yourself, be a light unto yourself. It's to teach us to stand on our own two feet, to take responsibility for our own happiness and unhappiness. It's not going to come from up above in this teaching. So, so the, the, the California guy following his own heart is sort of the opposite of the Sangha? Yes, you could say that. But he's just normal. Everyone's doing that. They're following their own heart. It's just that he had an eloquent way of putting it. We're just the mechanic, we're just happening. We don't, and there's not much examination or reflection on what, why we're behaving the way we are. Now and then we do it. And, and that's, look at the world, that's the way it looks. Okay, I, I don't want to talk our, ourselves, uh, any questions about what's been said before we start to actually sit? Um, uh, so a lot of what's been said, you won't be directly able to test it so much here because this isn't strongly a relationship kind of retreat, there's some. But when you go home, you can, and during the question and answer, a discussion period. Uh, I, if you have questions about how to apply relationship as a mirror in your daily life, uh, that would be fine because it is, I have found this to be something practical and, and very, very helpful. Okay. okay now why, it might be a good idea to stretch, move before we sit. <laughs>